0: Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, we introduce your toaster's nemesis, the opposing toaster.
1: Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend Pete Wright. Today on the show, we're taking a look at the machine that is humming along behind the scenes of your divorce. As soon as you engage an attorney to help you with your divorce, you start hearing about quote unquote opposing counsel. Who is it? What does it mean? And will your attorney get in a fight with them like you see in the movies? Today, we put those stories at rest with our guest and my frequent opposing counsel, Michael Lundy of Older and Lundy. He is here today from the great state of Florida in my hometown of Tampa. Michael, welcome to the toaster, you son of a bitch. That's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Off to a
2: great start already. I like it. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Uh, I I have been told I have been told that this conversation uh, could go uh, for several days. So we are we're we're putting out a mini series of uh, Seth and Michael talking about uh, litigation and judges. That's that's what I've been told. I'm very excited about it. Michael, welcome to the show. And uh, at what point in any given trial do you realize uh, I would like to ring Seth's neck? Does that ever happen?
2: Well, you know, the good news is Seth and I don't end up in trial. As we're wise enough to know how to get our folks to get issues resolved without having to do that, because that is a pretty horrendous process.
0: I'm thrilled for you both to hear you say that, but my inner sense of drama needs more conflict. You telling me there's just no conflict in the divorce process between counselors?
2: You know, I'm just telling you that Seth and I are okay, but you know, uh, we both make uh, a good living because there are plenty of players here that are going to force us to be in a state of absolute conflict.
0: Outstanding, Seth. I think you and I both know, even though Michael said it, we know
1: you're not above anything. Well, no, I mean, at my height, come on, (laughs) let's be real about it. Okay, (laughs) I'm great at limbo, but here's the deal Michael's absolutely right. I think Michael is brilliant. He is a tactician in the law and he solves problems. I cannot remember the last time Michael and I were standing in a courtroom arguing the law or arguing the facts because as Michael frequently says is, hey, we're trying to land this turbulent plane. What can we do? Because we both know that Michael could go to court against me and make every point follow the law to the T and have all the facts on his side and wipe me off the board. And I could still win because the judge is just going to get it wrong or come up with some arbitrary, crazy ruling. So I always got that going for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael, do you agree with that?
2: I, I do. I mean, it's, it really can be a crap shoot and to make matters worse, uh, our judges tend to rotate on and off the bench very frequently and after not being there for that long. So just as a judge starts to actually get some real expertise in our area, that's about the time that they get rotated into another area of law. And so we lose the value of all that. And that is one of the things that drives us crazy, right? Because we all know what each judge's strengths and weaknesses are. um, And we can play to those things. And, And to some extent, lawyers really go out of their way to take Advantage of those things and manipulate the results. And at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about people's lives, people's children, right? People's livelihoods. And, um, I'm just at this point in my career after doing it for this long, not so sure. I love that so much as much as I used to anyway.
0: Michael, I'm, I need to back you up a minute because I think you're talking about some mechanics of the legal system that maybe our listeners, if you're just listening to this because you're looking for some guidance about, you know, your divorce process might not understand when you talk about judge rotation. Can you give us a little a brief on what that means?
2: Judges are assigned to different divisions of the court. We have a criminal division. We have a civil division. We have a family division. We have a probate division. And they rotate from division to division, basically at the will of the chief administrative judge, uh, who wields quite a bit of power in, in judicial assignments. And so typically you'll see a family law judge in the family division for anywhere between two and five years. And it takes about two to three years for them to really, truly have some sophisticated understanding of what's going on in there.
1: The reason for that, Pete, is because someone either gets elected to the bench in Hillsborough County, Florida, or they get appointed by the governor. And then they're a judge. They're a 13th Judicial Circuit judge. That's what it's called in our where we live. The chief judge who's elected by the other judges, they're allowed to organize themselves And as Michael explained, they've organized themselves by having different divisions. But the chief judge is ultimately responsible and has the power to put the new judge in any division he wants. More often than not, a brand new judge who has never practiced family law a day in their career gets assigned to be a judge in the family law division.
2: Let me make that picture even worse. So in the family law division, unlike in most of the other divisions, the judge makes every single decision. It isn't a jury of your peers. You don't have six people sitting in a room and deliberating for days or hours or whatever it is and considering everything. You have one person who might have a stomachache that day, who might hate their ex-spouse, who might come to the table hungover, who might, who knows, right? Might just be having a really terrible day. And they're going to bring all their individual personal biases. And there's, there's nobody in the room with them to help them bounce ideas or, or make decisions. So it really does come down to that one individual person's way of making decisions.
0: Is this a, uh, should I ring the check your local jurisdiction bell? Or is this, a, to your knowledge, is this a fairly consistent way of organizing judicial responsibility?
1: You can always ring the bell because it's one of our favorite games to play. But in other jurisdictions, they do have divorce by a jury. Oh, okay. In Florida, you can have a paternity case where they're not married. You could try that to a jury. I've never known a lawyer to do that. It's just not the way it's typically done here in Florida. But yeah, in family law court, it's usually what's called a bench trial, which means one judge making all the decisions on what the facts are, And all the decisions on the law and how those get applied, and as I think Michael will agree with me, we'll come up with some arbitrary rotating schedule for children that is not based in anything scientific, anything on what's necessarily what's best for a child, but it's somewhere between 30% or 25% with one parent and the rest with the other, or 50-50.
2: Well, I'll tell you, you know, it it varies drastically even from county to county. So, you know, I think generally speaking right now in Hillsborough County, there's a a move towards parenting and time sharing stuff being equally divided. You go 20 miles north into Pasco County, and there's an absolutely opposite presumption against 50-50, or at least there was for quite some time. Similarly, you go to St. Pete, you might have a judge who's been sitting on the family law bench for 15 or 20 years. But in Hillsborough County, they're rotating off every two, three, four years. And then you have kind of a different problem when somebody's been on the bench for so long, they literally become callous, in my opinion, and they start to make decisions um, devoid of any concern about what the law says from time to time. They just do what they feel is right. And that's the end of that. You know, And trying to correct the mistake of a judge is a very costly, lengthy appeal process and it's too boring to talk about, but suffice to say, it's it's a problem trying to fix a mistake.
1: Sounds like fun, Pete. Want to get divorced in Hillsborough County? <laughs> yeah, you guys a, <laughs> built a hell of a case. Uh, well, we're lawyers, for God's sake. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah
0: right. Well, it, and and I think that that makes a lot of sense, and it, it it makes a lot of sense in terms of you know why when your attorney tells you you don't want to go to court. You should probably listen to them, whether you're in Hillsborough County or any other county. There's a reason that they're telling you you don't want to go to court in whatever your jurisdiction
1: is. There's no doubt in my mind that Michael Lundy can look at a case, a simple case, a complicated case, a complicated financial case, crazy facts, let's call them, on what's going on in parenting and what parents are doing that's harming children. And he can tell you with a very high degree of certainty what the judge should do in a very narrow width. It's going to be in here. He will not be able to tell you what that judge will do because they get it wrong all the time. And I've had it cases where both lawyers walk out and be like, Yep. Got it wrong. Both lawyers agree.
2: The other thing that, you know, now that I'm getting older and more philosophical about this, that just strikes me as absurd is, you know, our court system was originally set up to apply rules so people didn't commit crimes or steal property or trespass on each other's real estate. And now we've superimposed this court system, this civil litigation and criminal litigation system onto families. And the central premise behind our system is that people are adversarial to each other. So imagine on day one, you have a mom and a dad, and we're going to set them up as adversaries. Our system demands an adversarial process. And now mom and dad are adversaries against one another, and they hire lawyers to advocate for them, not the children, for them. And they go through an adversarial process to solve a family problem and you know anybody who thinks that that's the most effective way to do this just hasn't been doing this long enough
0: i wonder on that point specifically if the if it's a self-perpetuating cycle does that make sense that in fact because the system demands an adversarial process how much of an expectation is there when Uh, a couple is looking to separate that they're already I mean, they're already dealing with conflict in their in their relationship that's driving them to separate that they drive to be more aggressive because that's their expectation by retaining counsel to support them to do it. Does that make sense?
2: The entire system is set up to drive them into positions. I mean, think about this, right? Two people raise their children for 10 years. Not one time during that 10 years does either one of them call a lawyer and ask for parenting advice. Not one time in that 10 years does somebody say, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a judge come and tell us how to make a decision about whether our kids should play tackle football or not or whether they should go to this pediatrician or that pediatrician? And then all of a sudden, like off of a cliff, people dive into this adversarial process and your lawyer's not a parenting expert. They probably aren't even that good of a parent themselves. That they may not even be a parent. The judge may not be a parent. Right. And again, everybody's bringing all these biases into this situation. Um, I think it is a self-perpetuating cycle. And I also think that every time there's this big discussion about changing the law to try to make things simpler, the damn family law lawyers go crazy. I mean, right now there's all this legislation that's on the governor's desk waiting to be signed, and I get two to three emails a day of lawyers saying, stop this bill from getting passed.
0: And and the bill is designed to do what?
2: It's supposed to simplify things, right? It's supposed to say things like, we're going to start every case with a presumption that parents should have equal time with their children. Oh, everybody's up in arms about that because, quite frankly, a lot of lawyers are afraid that'll be less to fight about.
1: And what they don't get is that what divorce is really about is solving problems. And there's different ways to solve problems. The absolute worst way to solve your problem is to be in an adversarial system where a third party government employee, I'm not even going to say a judge, you're going to go to a governmental employee to make a decision about your children. That just makes no sense. And it's not like you get up there to tell your story. When you're in court and you're the litigant, you're the mom, you're the dad, you're the husband, you're the wife, you're treated like a child. You sit there, you don't say a word, you speak when spoken to, and you have to answer the question. The lawyer is the one that gets your day in court and it is riddled with objection-laden testimony because if you don't ask the question the right way, Michael Lundy's objecting. I'm objecting. Who's to say that isn't the
0: price for not being able to solve problems yourselves? Like, I imagine listening to this thinking, you know, if I'm in a position of separating, like, the reason I have to ask for some uh, someone else to step in is because I can no longer engage with the person that I have been married to for 10 years.
2: That is a great question. And I think that there's truth in that. Um, that is the price for people who can't solve their problems. The concern I have is that we don't, we don't give them the tools or the appropriate process at the outset to try to solve the problems themselves. Person A goes into lawyer A, and person B goes into see lawyer B, and they've already stopped talking. They they should have person A and person B going in to see mental health professional C and trying to facilitate some communication. Um, and, you know, there's a, a dozen or so other things that people could be engaging in that would be a lot more productive than, you know, quote unquote, lawyering up and gearing up for the big fight. And lawyers can and do very frequently um, say, and in the public record, very inflammatory things. And the communication of all that inflammatory junk only drives the people further apart. I mean, I tell my clients all the time. You know, if we go to trial, the two of you are likely going to hate each other. And how do you think your child is going to feel about having two parents that can't sit in the same room together when that child gets married or has some other important life event?
1: And to add to that, though, Pete, when I say that to my client, I have that same discussion. I'll say, and when Michael Lundy and I walk out of that courtroom where we've been just battling it out, tearing you guys apart. We're still going to be friends. We're going to go have a beer together. We're going to have a, go ni- a really nice bottle of wine that, frankly, you guys paid for. It makes no sense. So what the pleasure of working with Michael when he's opposing counsel, and I do that in quotes, is we call each other and say, how, to use Michael's words, do we land this turbulent plane? What are the problems? What are the solutions? What are some things we can do along the way to make our clients, respective clients, a little more comfortable with the ultimate outcome? It doesn't go from zero to 60 and you're done. Sometimes your client might have to prove themselves a little bit. sometimes another client that wants the proof is going to have to say, okay, maybe I don't get everything I want, but this is close enough. Let's start working these problems. What are better ways to communicate? Can we do something what we typically don't do is maybe give someone the benefit of the doubt and not the other way?
2: Pete, I'll give you an anecdote from this week. Yeah. Okay? Okay. Two parents, they're divorced. They hate each other. They hate each other because they went to trial in their original case. Last week, the eight-year-old child of these parents filmed on a cell phone her 12-year-old sister sucking on my, our clients, new spouses, dildo. Okay. What? Instead of picking, all right, now you wish you're on video so we could all see your face. This is not that crazy in our world. I mean, it's what should happen? Well, parent A should pick up the phone and call parent B and say, Hey, I found this terrible stuff on our child's cell phone. What are we going to do about this? But what does she do? She doesn't say a word. She weaponizes this issue. She files an emergency motion. My client's time sharing, our client's time sharing is suspended temporarily because the judge is inflamed by all this stuff that her lawyer puts into a motion. But it turns out she only tells half the story in the motion. Of course, we think we're doing a great job for our client because we uncover the other half of the story. We go in, we tell the judge, and the judge is furious with her, A, because she misled him and it caused a problem for my client's time sharing, and B, because he's looking at these two people going, for God's sakes, you have two children misbehaving. Talk to each other. Parent your children. What in the world do you want me to do about this problem, right? Right. Right, And this is, this is all too common. Something horrible happens and two people need to have the tools to pick up the phone and talk to each other and solve the problem. And instead, our system is designed to make them be adversarial about these things and to think of these things as ammunition.
0: It seems to me like there's a point at which th- there's like a, a stage gate where incentives change Right where suddenly you go as as a counselor for these people, right? As as legal support, you have to change gears from this person who is rational and wants to see these these two people talk to one another and figure out how to solve problems to okay. If you're going to fight about this, I'm going to have to be the kind of attorney that weaponizes information in these in in these briefs. Like I, I there is because the system is adversarial in such a way that it is that if we're going to go down this road, we have to change gears because we're incented differently. We're incented to win, for lack of a better you know phrase in this case. Is 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 that a fair assessment of. Of the kind of because I I feel like the person you're talking about who's who everybody's upset about, the attorney who filed that motion is, uh, is could you not make the case that they're mounting an able case for their client?
1: Well, you can, but the question is, are they also asking the other questions? Are they going to their client and saying, Listen, this is a problem. Have you picked up the phone? What have you done? to try to protect your child, there's a problem here. Have they had that conversation? Have they said, is this the full story? Because let me tell you, because we know from the previous litigation, they're going to go hire Michael Lundy and Michael's going to try to uncover the full story because there's always more to the story. And when that full story comes out, are you going to look bad for pulling one over on the judge, which is exactly what Michael just described here? And what is your ultimate goal? Did the lawyer say, what is your goal? If the goal is, well, I want to get more time sharing. Okay, it's okay. It's 50-50. They're still going to get time at the other parent's house. If it's a real safety issue, which never makes sense to me when people come to me and say it's a safety issue. Well, then why are you offering every other weekend and every Wednesday night, but not the... Every Thursday night, and that's the difference, right? So, if it's a real safety issue, you wouldn't be arguing for any time.
2: I mean, the other thing that gets me is why didn't the lawyers talk to each other, right? You know why? Because the other lawyer on that case thought that she was going to get one up on us by running down to the courthouse and ringing the bell and making everybody crazy. And then not only did your client lose credibility, so did you, and. What's the goal to interfere with your child's relationship with the other person? I mean, does that really have the right long term outcome for you or for your child? And what what I think is at the center of a lot of this is people just put their own shit first instead of the child's stuff. You know, they just, they're so wrapped up in their positions and they're so wrapped up in beating this other person and, and getting some kind of revenge or whatever it is that they they forget about what really is most important, which is raising a healthy child into a healthy adult, right? I mean, do you want your kid to have depression, anxiety, eating disorders, promiscuity? Do you want the kid to have other problems? You know, go ahead, have a nasty custody fight.
1: Basically, Michael just said, do you want your kid to grow up and be like Seth? Like, if you do (laughs) go to litigation, (laughs) if you want to be more like Pete, yeah, stay out of court. (laughs) Stay out of court. You
0: you guys are both, uh, you know, seasoned uh, attorneys. When how long does it take you? Uh, in your practice to wake up and realize it's so, like you can be a little bit more level headed about this because it seems like you're you might be anomalous in the practice that there are other attorneys out there who are not so level headed who might encourage the adversarial uh, approach to to divorce.
2: My opinion on this is that um, if you really are a business person about what we do and, and both Seth and I are, you realize that in the long run, your business will thrive by being honest and treating people with respect and being rational in how you make decisions and counsel your clients. When you're not a business person and you think that you have to squeeze the last drop of juice out of every single piece of fruit that comes through your door, you will in the short run make more money on some cases. But what you will do is engender a lot of negative feeling out there Amongst your clients, who will end up being very disappointed because you set expectations unrealistically at the outset, you're going to have an upset client at the end of the case. And amongst judges and other lawyers. The judges and other lawyers know who the lunatics are. It's not a secret. Judges talk
1: about lawyers more than lawyers talk about judges. Wow. I'm convinced of that because they see us all coming through every day. They go behind the secured, the secured doors with their little fobs, right? They they walk up and down the hall where they all have their chambers, and they're in that courtroom by themselves all day with their bailiff. What do you think they do when they go and they've had a bad experience in front of, with a lawyer in front of them? They're telling the other judges, watch them. They don't trust them.
0: Uh, picture you're uh, a representative judge in the Hillsborough County court system. They're listening to you two talk about this and their work and your work. What are they saying right now?
2: Oh, I mean, I've watched these judges give speeches the first time they get in front of parties. That's very much in line with uh, with what we're talking about right now. I mean, I I had a case where I represented an African-American gentleman, the other side was an African-American woman, and a judge who I have great respect for, who's been around for a long time, at the first opportunity sat down and said, do I look like I should be making decisions about your holiday schedule, your life, your child? If you want a man who doesn't know you, doesn't look like you, doesn't know your child, doesn't know anything about your lives to make these decisions, come on in, I'll do it but do not expect to be pleased with the result.
1: I think genuinely the judges want to do, quote unquote, the right thing. I think ultimately, as Michael said earlier, they're longer on the bench. They're just doing what they think is right. They start ignoring the law. Why is that? Because the law isn't necessarily going to do the right thing, which makes it really hard for practitioners when we're going in saying, here's the law judge, right? And I understand it might not line up with what you're thinking. And Michael was saying before, hey, we get a different outcome in Hillsborough versus Pinellas versus Pasco. We get a different outcome if you're in courtroom 401 or courtroom 402. It's a different outcome. And I can tell you cases where I know if I'm in front of one judge, I'm going to win this argument. If I'm in the judge next door, I'm going to lose it. And it's the same argument, the same facts, the same law. And I think the judges will tell you, how am I supposed to make a really good decision based upon one day of testimony, an hour or two? I'm not going to really get the full picture. And I think the thing that judges will be saying is, yeah, you need to stay out of court because even with the best lawyers, we're not going to get the full picture because there's just not enough time. And they get really frustrated with a packed docket. Where well, you can't even get into court for trial. If Michael and I were ready to go to trial today on complex legal issues and we needed two days, we're not getting to court for four to six months. They're that backed up. And those judges really get annoyed with bad lawyering because it's wasting their time. It's not giving them the information they need to make the decision. They're basically saying to them, hey, judge, I want you to build this house and then the lawyers don't put on the evidence on whether it's going to be one story or two, or is it going to be brick or stucco? So what is the judge supposed to do with that? Like, how am I going to put a roof on this thing when I don't even know what the support system is on it? And I think it's a tragedy. And the things that I bitch about most are poor lawyering on the other side who are running up bills, not solving problems, and creating problems where there aren't. them. like, scheduling a hearing or a deposition. And you have to, like, send... 15 emails back and forth and i'm finally like just said it i'll object in court you're not you know i'm not going to keep playing this game or i get frustrated with the with the judges because either they don't know or they're making decisions not based on law there's no way to be able to tell what's going to happen you give them you lay it out for them and they're they're just ruling from a different playbook that you don't get to see
0: it, it seems to me that we don't ever ever want to go to trial that that seems like the the worst possible thing but also what happens when you when you have somebody who comes to you and says under no circumstances are we going to settle i want to go to court i want to fight
1: i want i I want to make it hard here's what they say it's the principle of it oh i have one rule about that oh i've got my i got my story you go first mike (laughs)
2: okay and my rule is uh, I will fight about your principle on one condition, and the condition is you're never allowed to complain to me about the bill. Because nobody who is fighting about principle ever feels that the benefit outweighed the cost by the time you get to the end.
0: Principle is expensive.
1: Yeah, I do a similar speech. I tell them this, though. I said, I don't, you just told me that the principle that's the core of who you are. I will never ask you to change your core. I'm not going to ask you, I'm never going to ask you again to settle on that issue. It's the principle of it. But here's what I don't understand. You're about to pay me a shit ton of money to go to court to get a government employee to agree with your principles. Why do you care what a government employee thinks about your principles? If they get it right and they agree with you, you're going to say, oh, great, they agreed. Who cares? And if they get it wrong, do you think you're going to reevaluate your principles? You're just going to say they got it wrong. So what the fuck are we doing? And give me a $20,000 retainer. And then you go. As long as it's supported in the law and it's not a frivolous argument. If they want to waste their money, uh, but I'm going to have this conversation, I'm going to have them sign the letter saying not to do it," then we go from there.
2: You know, that, that really is what separates guys like Seth and me from other lawyers. It's where we are not at all shy about being heavy-handed with our own clients and telling them what we think is right and discouraging them from going down, you know, an ugly path. I think that a lot of lawyers, particularly young lawyers or lawyers who are more motivated by sort of short term greed, um, they just don't want to say something that they think their client isn't going to want to hear. And, you know, if you ask me, that makes you a shitty lawyer. If you can't deliver the bad news to your client or tell them what the whole realistic range of outcomes looks like, including the bad end of the spectrum, you are not serving your client. And I routinely When people come into my office and say, you know, I'm going to talk to a couple of more lawyers, I say, I think it's a great idea. I'll give you one piece of unsolicited advice. If a lawyer tells you everything that you want to hear during that consultation, run from that office. That is not a good sign.
1: Absolutely. And you got to be able to deliver the bad news. When Chief Justice Roberts was in his confirmation process, of course, a lot of stories come out about the, the... someone that's in that position trying to get confirmed, in the Senate. And there was a story about how he lost a case in front of the Supreme Court. And his client said, I can't believe, how could we lose nine nothing? And Robert said, because there was only nine justices. (laughs) It was that bad. (laughs) 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 But he told him on the front end, you know, that we're probably gonna lose this one, and here's why. And you have to be able to explain it, and you also have to be able to explain to your clients, the process sucks. No one ever goes to build a house and says, oh my God, construction's gonna be so much fun, right? And I tell them at the front end, I cannot control this process. I'll do the best I can. I don't know who's on the other side. And what clients don't understand is, when I look at a case get filed, they come to me and say, I've just been served. Or, hey, they come to me and my, my wife or spouse has hired Michael Lundy. What do you think? I said, that's the best news I've gotten all day. And they'll say, well, why? I heard he's really tough in court. I said, he is. They're like, well, why is it so good? I said, because he's a good lawyer. And good lawyers are going to solve problems. And I'm telling you, Michael and I are friends. We'll have wine together. We're going to do this afterwards, and that's going to help your case because I can text Michael and say, I need to talk to you. He'll pick up the phone. We can solve the problems. You've got to be willing to meet meet halfway. We got to be able to figure this out, and Michael and I have seen every type of case there's ever been. They're all just repeats with different personalities and different crazy stories, but it's all problem solving, and we got a lawyer on the other side that can do it. And ultimately, if we can't get our clients there, Michael and I are going to tell each other, all right, Mike, let's go tee it up. Do your thing. I'll do mine. And, you know, we'll throw it to this judge who's been on the bench for 18 months and just see what happens.
2: The people talk about the salacious moments that occur in a courtroom you know, you made somebody cry. One lady accused me of making her have a miscarriage because of my cross-examination. <laughs> I mean, I have heard it all. Wow. And wow. people talk about, you know, those moments. That's a, a tiny fraction of what we do. The really hard work is done when I'm picking up the phone and having a conversation with Seth at seven o'clock at night because there's something immediate happening. And we are figuring out how to calm the situation down. That's the stuff that stresses me out, trying to really solve the problem. And that's where, you know, we spend 75, 80, 90% of our our effort. It's just not the stuff that, you know, people are out there talking about because it's boring to the average person. They want to talk about that time you tore somebody up in a courtroom, which I'm perfectly happy to do when forced. But it's not something that I seek. Right. And no one calls
1: up and tells their friends, you know. It was Saturday over winter break and I got a hold of my lawyer when he was on vacation and he got a hold of the other lawyer that they were on vacation and we worked out this problem. No one says that even though that's happened, right? They, and here's the other problem about going to court, not at the final trial. There are skirmishes along the way and the outcome of those skirmishes can just totally derail a case because someone wins and someone loses a skirmish and it emboldens one. Like, oh, look, my lawyer's better. Yeah, I'm not gonna settle now. I can go to court, I can go to court. No matter how much you tell your client, yeah, we won that one, but let me tell you, that's not gonna help us in the long run.
2: Yeah, I get that problem all the time where you started a case and somebody who makes all the money says, I'm not paying the bills, right? And then while they're not paying the bills and your client is super stressed out panicking calling you every day worried about this worried about that the other side says look I'll, I'll settle the whole case with you and they try to leverage all this you know this anxiety and try to get a good deal and my response to that is no, I'm not going to do that when we when we settle these issues then we'll talk about settling the whole case and if they play you know hardball with that okay we'll go to court we'll level the playing field and after we're done with that We'll see how you feel about that. Then you go to court, they get a black guy and they realize, wow, that doesn't feel very good. And so now all of a sudden they're open to having a conversation about ending it. And by the way, buddy, you're going to pay me to try to kick your ass. I mean, I don't I never have understood that phenomenon where somebody knows they're going to be paying my bill to fight against them. Uh, maybe they're testing the waters. Maybe they just don't get it. Maybe their lawyer's doing a terrible job of telling them what's going to happen. But, you know, that's that's very typical.
1: So when you're listening to this, Pete, and you're interviewing lawyers, that's part, I mean, we had a whole podcast on what you should be asking a lawyer on the front end. Right? Yeah, right, right. Is Is how can you improve as a lawyer? How do you practice law? How do you approach these problems? And you got to hear what they have to say.
0: Yeah, I like how you know Michael's point of you know if they tell you just what you want to hear, then run. That's I I think that's a that's a good starting place. Uh, Can we can we switch to mechanics a little bit? Because, you know, we've talked a lot about what it's like when it's not going well or how to how to stay out of of court. Uh, Can you just walk us through if I'm listening to this and I think, okay, I do want to settle. What does that look like? What are the expectations that my attorney is going to have for me when working with opposing counsel? Are there expectations? Am I going to have to work with with the other team? How does that work? Does it all just are we all in a room together? What does that look like briefly Uh, set the set the stage for us?
2: You know, there's a lot of different ways to settle a case. There's, there's formal mediation. There's informal meeting and discussion. There's just sort of going back and forth, um, lawyer to lawyer, or even at at times I tell people, why don't you go sit down and have a conversation with your wife or with your husband and talk about this issue? Let's see if we can solve something small and start building some forward momentum. I really have to understand the temperature of the case. I have to understand the, you know, intellectual imbalance between people. I have to understand the financial sophistication imbalance between people. And you're juggling a lot of, you know, nuance to figure out what's the best path forward. Um, but to me, you know, it starts with having enough information and then preparing with your client. Um, once everybody is, sort of on equal footing in terms of information and prepared, the lawyers should not have a major dispute between what's the best and what's the worst case scenario on the facts that you have. I mean, we it's the same six issues over and over and over again in family law. So we all should have a pretty good sense of where it's going. Um, and once the lawyers have a similar perspective on best and worst, people ought to be able to get to the middle and get on with it. And
1: on that front, as I start with this, what are your goals? Whether they're broad or specific, it could be, I want to stay in the house. Okay, well, there's a reason for that. What's the underlying reason? Because I want to stay in the house. I'm keeping the house as a position. What's the underlying reason for that position? Well, you know, we can't afford private school. They're in a really great school district. And they're going into middle school. And if we could just hold on to this house through high school, that would be really amazing, right? Okay, well, let's talk about that. What is the house worth? What's the debt? What's the mortgage? Let's get these finances. Are there other assets that we can offset? Are we going to agree to maybe keep this house for a while and then sell it when they graduate, then split the money so both parties are at equal risk on the value, right? There's ways to figure that out, but you have to get to the underlying interest and what they're really trying to do, right?
0: Well, I was just I was just noticing what happened to me because I, I as you were talking, I was like, well, I want to keep the house because I like my house. But as soon as you said school district, I thought, oh, I totally relate to that. And I can see how both parents would completely relate to that, right? Like, of course, we have to keep the house to keep them in the school that they know and love. And now it's not about us at all. It's about the kids.
1: Exactly. And then... Be honest with yourself about a schedule. Pete, you know this. I got divorced when Kai was two and a half years old. I did not fight for a 50-50 timesharing schedule. I have Kai. I mean, now I have him 50-50 because COVID came and his mom and he decided it'd be better to go week on, week off. And he was 15, 16 years old at the time. Like, it was just easier. It's easier for older kids. But I wasn't going to go to court and argue over 50-50. When I was building a law practice, I knew that at that stage, it was going to be hard enough to be the dad that I wanted to be with 40% of the time. And it was more important for me to be present for the 40% than say 50% and be absent for 10. Yeah. So be honest with yourself on what you can do. I had a case once where the guy's like, no, I'm going to get a nanny the whole time. I'm like, you are an international airline pilot. Why wouldn't the children be with their mother, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's just not happening, right? You got to put them back in storage, you know, like, you know, it's just, so you got to be honest with yourself, right? About what you can do, what you can't do, what's important to you, and then you can start getting traction and let the lawyers help you work the issues and figure out how to do it. There's a million ways to settle the case, like Michael said. We've done them, thousands and thousands of cases. Nothing's gonna be new. But getting to where you're talking to each other, and even if it has to go through counsel, Michael and I can pick up the phone and say, okay, hey, what's the breakdown? And what information do you need? Michael, I don't have any of these guys' tax returns. My client has no idea about the finances. Can you get me the documents? Maybe I'll get a forensic that I might think I'll need some help explaining it to them. Maybe it'll be cheaper and quicker and faster if we can work that instead of going to court and arguing about what documents your client did give, didn't give, is hiding, didn't. What about that account? Oh, what about the profit and loss where they deducted all this stuff or they amortized something or they, they, they did X or Y with their business and they have retained earnings? I mean, we could go on and on and on. And with someone that doesn't even know like, hey, I swiped the credit card, I think it gets paid. And a lot of people are in that position because that's how they've defined their marital roles. So when you're listening to this, you got to talk to the lawyers. Like, who's a good lawyer on their side? Who can you work with? And I've done this more than once. I've had people call me and, and much like with Michael, they say they're interviewing other lawyers. I'll tell them, I believe very, very strongly about the attorney-client relationship. If you're willing to share who are you talking to? And I'll give you my unsolicited advice on those lawyers. And I'm telling you now for every single lawyer I tell you is bad, I'll give you the name of a good lawyer that you should go talk to. And I do.
2: Really? Cause I think there's a lot more bad lawyers than good lawyers. So I don't <laughs> yeah. know how you can, you can make yeah. good on that promise. Yeah. Because
1: but... when they get to three, I stop Michael. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's the end. That's the end yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: I mean, there's a handful, right? We only have a handful of people Michael and I would refer cases to in town. You know, yeah. it's just for this reason. Yeah, yeah. So uh,
0: and I, I know we've talked about this before, but in in your estimation, you compare the length of time it takes you to get a, a solid uh, non trial s- divorce compared to going to trial and having the, the courts decide your divorce. How long is it going to take me? On average. Is there an average?
2: On average, I tell people they're looking at a six to 18 month process. Obviously, there are outlier situations. I have cases that settle immediately and I have cases that have gone on for two or three years. Usually, I see the same players on the other side of those cases that go on and on and on. I have lawyers who it takes months to move the ball an inch forward. And, um, and it's a shame. It really is, because I I firmly believe nobody's divorce should take longer than 12 months. I mean, there's some some exceptions to that, because cases can't have very complicated issues. But to me, if a case has complicated financial issues, they still should be done with the parenting part of the case inside of a year. There's just no reason to have them in litigation about something like that for that long. I use the exact same time frame, six to 18 months.
1: And... The quicker we can exchange information and make sure everyone has the information they need to make decisions, the better. And that's usually financial. I will tell you within the first four weeks of a client being with me, I really try to go over what a parenting plan looks like. They have all the information on parenting. You've been parenting this kid for 10
2: years. Yeah, What do we need? You know, the percentages. I mean, people are so, I I hate the discussion about percentages. People are so fixated on 50-50. I'm like, you know, on day one, you come in and I'm not settling for anything less than 50-50. I'm like, really? What do you think the difference is between 50-50 and 54-46? Because I know exactly what it is. It's one day a month because I've had this same inane conversation 500 times. You know, you don't focus on that. What you need to focus on is the quality of your experiences with your children. Your children remember their experiences and their traditions. Not one child who went through one of these cases will remember that their parents were on a fifty-four forty-six schedule. Yep. But they'll remember that their parents had to sit on opposite sides of the soccer field. I guarantee they remember that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Pete, you know, Kai's mom and I had a a huge litigation battle neither one of us wanted his ass you take him no you take him
2: <laughs>
1: let me tell you i've told that joke in front of kai more than once and he knows it's coming i'd love it he can't do anything about it it plays every time <laughs>
0: According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, approximately 10%
1: of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. This is an alarming statistic as a family law professional who deals with custody cases regularly.
0: Finding the balance between the child's safety and helping the child maintain a relationship with both parents is one of the hardest things to navigate. Add in the he said, she said phenomenon that happens with divorcing couples who often weaponize alcohol use against one another, and the situation is even more difficult.
1: All of this is why Soberlink has been one of the most important tools for my clients dealing with these issues. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind regarding the child's safety. Soberlink helps keep the focus on the best interest of the child, which is really the most important part in a divorce case, dealing with children. I've teamed up with Soberlink to create a parenting plan guide to help people going through divorce that involves alcohol in children.
0: And you can download it today at Soberlink.com toaster. And if you take a look and you think you're ready to order Soberlink, just mention How to Split a Toaster for $50 off
1: their device price. Our thanks to Soberlink for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster. You know, I, I want to
0: change I want to change gears briefly because we actually have a listener question and uh, we've been holding this one to have not one, but two attorneys on the show at the same time to weigh in. Uh, do, anybody object to to a listener question right now?
1: Fire away. You're going to get four different answers, even though you only yeah. got two lawyers here. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Chef's kiss.
0: Perfect. Here we go. This comes from Kate. Kate says, my former common law spouse is a lawyer though not a divor- divorce or family lawyer. And I think he hasn't sought any legal advice. It's starting to impact our settlement negotiations. My lawyer feels he's misunderstanding some things because it's complex and change and a changing field. Is there anything I can say to him, this lawyer not divorce attorney,
2: that will convince
0: him to seek his own legal help?
1: Have Michael, the look on your face.
2: <laughs> well, because the first thing that comes to mind is why don't you help me to see if I can control the person on the other side of this case? I mean, I'm totally out of the legal context, yeah, of it, right. but this is a very common phenomenon. Why would, will this person not change? Right? right? I mean, you can't talk sense into somebody that doesn't want to hear sense. I mean, for God's sakes, this gentleman's a lawyer and he doesn't know to get legal advice. If he were a dermatologist, I suspect he would not try to remove his own heart and replace it with a new heart. And, you know, I could use a million silly examples, but, you know, I don't try to fix my car because I have no expertise in fixing cars. So I I, I don't know what to do because the real question is, how do I talk sense to this person that's just not making sense?
1: Seth, what do you think? Absolutely. And I tell it to my client all the time. They'll come to me with a question such as this. And I said, here's the problem you're trying to bring a rational solution to an irrational problem. And they start repeating it back to me. I said, they're not changing their stripes. Michael's heard it, you know, a lawyer that, ha- that represents himself has a fool for a client. So, you know, you said this was from Kate, right, Pete? Kate. Kate, send him a text. You've heard a lawyer... <laughs> That represents himself as a fool for a client. I think you should get legal counsel because I know you're not a fool, but you got to end with the positive. Yeah, right, right. Right. Maybe that will help. Maybe it's going to inflame him, Kate. I can't promise either way. But the point is, you can't, this zebra's not changing his stripes.
0: This I, hearing you guys talk about it, it just reminds me this is less a legal question and more an Oprah Brene Brown kind of question uh, that, that there's there's more going on here that maybe needs to be addressed. So, Kate, thank you so much uh, for uh, writing in your question. There you have it. Send him a text. And roll the dice on the inflammation. This has been a good conversation, gents. Thank you so much. Michael, uh, thank you so much for joining the, uh, joining the show here and, and talking to us a little bit about the changing, changing the tone of divorce.
2: Thanks for having me. really appreciate it.
0: Where would you like to send people to learn more about you?
2: They can go to olalaw.com or they can call me anytime, 813-254-8998. If you don't call me, call Seth.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the beauty. I was talking to a friend of mine and they're like, you're really going to have opposing counsel on your show? I'm like, Michael doesn't get to represent both sides. You know, we're good. <laughs> he thought I was like tearing into my practice. And, like,
0: Well, that's the that's the crazy part. Like, I think there is this this, uh, you know, of course, there is this sense, this
1: pop culture sort of sense that you guys should not like each other at all. Oh, it's ridiculous. And here's the other thing that I think is different about the practice of law and family law versus criminal defense or insurance defense. If you're representing criminal defendants, you're never getting the other side of that case because that's the state, and they're the ones bringing the charges. You're always on the defense side. If you are a PI lawyer, slip and fall, you're always suing the insurance company. In divorce. One day, I'm going to have the person with money. The next day, I'm going to have the person without money. I'm going to have the wife on one case, the husband on the next. I'm going to have the primary caregiver on one case and the one that doesn't really see the kids much on the next case. One day, I'm going to have someone that suffers from alcoholism. The next case, I'm going to have the person who's married to the person who suffers from alcoholism. We see both sides of the arguments all day long, and in one case... You're going to make one argument. In the next case, you're going to make a different argument. But in all the cases, you're solving the same problems. And that's why when you get a good lawyer like Michael on the other side, he knows three months down the road, we're going to be switching roles because of where our clients are coming to us. What are the problems? What are their issues? And that's what I like about this area of practice, because I can pick up the phone and be like, Michael, come on, man. A year ago, we had the same case, but we had the different clients. This is how we resolved it. Can we get these these people here? he's like, I'm trying. So I think it's unique in our practice. And so you don't want your lawyers hating each other unless you want to spend a whole lot of money. That's not going to get you anywhere.
0: You don't want your lawyers hating each other. All right, I think we just found a title. Don't let your lawyers hate each other.
1: (laughs) Mike, I
2: really appreciate you coming on, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: And thank you everybody for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate your time and your attention. On behalf of Michael Lundy and, controversially, Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, (laughs) I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships.
1: Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson-Coster Family Law and Mediation, with offices in Tampa, Florida.